I have to say thanks. Uh, we've had, a, a, I think you used the word, a brilliant week here. That doesn't mean shiny in the sun, but uh, it's been fantastic to be back in Northern Ireland and to experience more of the church and the depth of spirituality in Northern Ireland, commitment to Christ and to church and ministry and evangelism. It's, it's really been a great experience for us and we will never forget it. So thank you for the invitation. I have to thank especially Barry and uh, Peter for the invitation, Peter for keeping me humble <laughs> and disagreeing with me at times, but we, we know we're a lot closer, so we put on a staged disagreement. <laughs> but uh, we're serving the same Lord and trying to be faithful to Him in, this, in the same way. So I appreciated uh, Peter and Barry for this, and we are especially thankful for Anne, who has looked after Kristen and me at the hotel, uh, keeping us in cars, making sure we get here, that we get back. Uh, There's a lot of people that she has to take care of, and we're kind of impressed with all that she keeps juggling with all these people. And so thank you very much, Anne, and for the kind hospitality that we've experienced here in Northern Ireland. Um, And most of the time, we've understood everything you've said to us. (laughs) I want to start uh, by reading a verse from the book of Acts and then uh, launch into our discussion this morning about the kingdom and its mission. Jesus said to his disciples there at the beginning of the book of Acts, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority. Instead of worrying about when things will happen, He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is our mission. This is the kingdom mission, and I think the question we're asking, by the way, we were at the end of the earth two weeks ago, on a far island in Alaska, and it wasn't the end of the world, but you could see it from there, just over the horizon. But the kingdom mission, the kingdom mission is the challenge that Jesus gives his disciples here, but we might ask the question, what did they think they were supposed to do when they went out with this mission? Did they just show up in cities and go, well, here we are, believe. No, they they had seen Jesus operate as a missionary. And so this morning, we want to look at how Jesus operated as a missionary, how Jesus focused on the kingdom of God. Five themes of the kingdom of God, and we're on number five. You have to have a king. This king is Jesus in the New Testament. You have to have a rule for this king to be ruling He rules by way of governing his people and redeeming them from sin and sickness and the devil and systemic injustices. And then he creates a people. The third theme of the kingdom of God in the New Testament is called the church as it expands Israel to include Gentiles in the one family of God and inherit the covenant blessings and promises of Abraham given in Genesis 12. And then there is a vision, moral vision, for how these people are to live under King Jesus. And we touched on that yesterday with the themes of love, righteousness, 
and cross. So today we get to the fifth theme, and that for there to be a kingdom, there must be a land or sacred space in which these people live. But as you read the New Testament, you realize that this land promise in the Bible expands. In some senses, Israel remains the Holy Land, and it remains the center of the universe for the Apostle Paul. It's not Chicago. It's not Belfast. It's not London. It's not Dallas, Texas. Don't tell those in Dallas that. For Paul, the center of the world remained Jerusalem. But the promise to the temple, the promise to the land becomes expanded in the pages of the New Testament as the church goes out into the, into the Roman Empire and preaches the gospel to include Gentiles. So today, we want to look on this mission in the world that Jesus gives to his followers. And I would like to begin with the original principle of mission in the New Testament. You're going to have to have your Bibles here, but this is exciting. No one's ever taught you this before. It's never been heard in Northern Ireland. The original principle of Jesus for mission. Matthew 4.23. I'd like you to look at Matthew 4.23 and then turn a couple pages and keep your finger fixed on Matthew 9.35. And we're going to look at this section just briefly. In Matthew 4.23, Matthew describes the ministry and mission of Jesus. It's the first time I noticed there was a clock there. I guess I've been nervous. I once preached in a church that had a clock. It was a big church, six feet tall in front of you, and it was counting down. And I said, you know, how close do I have to be? And they said, 30 seconds either way. So I had a long prayer at the end. (laughs) Jesus went throughout the Galilee, and this is the three things that he did. Preaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Now, in Greek, every sickness, every disease and sickness is pasan nasan kai pasan malikian. Very interesting expression because it's only found in Matthew. So Matthew 4.23 tells us that Jesus' ministry is composed of teaching, preaching, and healing. Matthew 9.35 at the end of a section in the Gospel of Matthew, because Matthew did not have chapter divisions when he wrote this, you know. Matthew 9.35 says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages. What was he doing? You guessed it. Teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing pasan nasan kai pasan malakian, every disease and sickness. Now, in the ancient world, you didn't have chapter divisions, so it was common to begin a section and to end a section with similar expressions so you would tip off the reader that 
we are going to begin a section and end a section. It ties it into a unit. Now notice this. In Matthew chapters 5 through 9, following Matthew 4, 23 through 25, we have two major sections. Chapters 5 through 7 is an illustration, is the condensation, is the collection of the teaching and probably preaching of Jesus. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus taught in Galilee, in the villages, in cities. And chapters 8 through 9 is a collection of 10 miracle stories by Jesus, most of which are healing stories. So here's what Matthew's doing. He's saying, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell you, and when I'm done telling you, I'm going to tell you that I told you. Is that clear? Even to a Midwest Chicagoan, that's clear. This is an outline of what I'm going to say, and then I'm going to say it. Matthew 5 through 9, teaching and preaching. Chapters 8 and 9, healing. And now that I've told you what I was going to tell you, I'm going to remind you what I talked about. In other words, Matthew chapters 5 through 9 is a sort of, here's Jesus, take him or leave him. This is what he teaches, and this is what he does. Do you want to be connected to this Jesus? The first evangelistic section of the New Testament. A presentation of the ministry of Jesus. All right? That's pretty reasonable, but it's, it's more beautiful than that. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, we have this. Jesus called his disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal pasan nasan kai pasan malikian, every disease and every sickness. Now you see what's happened? Here's Jesus. Here's your mission. What is your mission? The mission of the kingdom disciple of Jesus is to extend and expand the mission of Jesus. The only thing we have to do as Christians is to present Jesus in our world and in our context and in our language. Our responsibility, because Matthew 10 is Matthew's discourse on mission. So we get Jesus and then we get mission. There is no mission until you understand the mission of Jesus. And once you understand the mission of Jesus, you understand what our mission is. Our responsibility is to extend and expand the mission of Jesus into our world. Each of us is called to take the mission of Jesus and to make it relevant and to speak it into our own local communities, into our own families, into our own neighborhoods. That's the mission of a disciple. And I'd like to speak a little bit to the younger generation here or to anyone who is concerned about their calling in life. As you consider what you think God wants you to do, I think these words are very important, that your responsibility is to extend and expand the ministry of Jesus in your environment. In 1975... I was in 
Belgium, in Brussels, and for the first time in my life, I heard, a, I heard speaking a fairly young, at that time, preacher from London by the name of John R. W. Stott, who sort of became my hero. And in a question and answer session, someone asked John Stott something that became a leading light for my life. Someone asked him, how do I know what God's will is for my life? And John Stott said something like this. And how I remember it is what was said, whether it was what was said or not, because it transformed my life. He said, too many people settle for too little. But he said this, go wherever the maximum number of your gifts can be exploited. Go wherever the maximum number of your gifts can be exploited. I have followed that, I think, my entire life. Well, actually, I made the decision early, and it's, I've not done anything else. I, I wanted at times to be a missionary. I would have been an awful missionary, but I would have been really good in German because I like the German language, and I would have wanted to talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer all the time. And I think I could have been a pastor, but I'd have probably been a pretty bad pastor. I would have shaken the rafters a while and then found another church and then probably ended up doing something else. But I think God called me to use my gifts as a teacher, and I love to teach. I never get up in the morning and say, oh, I have to teach today. I like to get up in the morning. I get to read and write and I get to teach, and I get to irritate students and get under their skin and make them think about things that they would rather not think about. But that's my calling in life. And if you're considering this now, think about what your gifts are and make sure you go where your gifts can be exploited the most by the situation. Some of you are sitting in situations where you know some of the most important gifts that God has given you cannot be used. Think about how those gifts can be exploited and find that place where your gifts can be exploited. Because this is what Jesus did and this is what he gave his disciples to do. So we're asking the question, when Jesus said be witnesses, what did he mean by that? It's general to say expand the ministry of Jesus. Extend the ministry of Jesus into your world. I'd like to suggest that there are three things of what it means to follow the ministry of Jesus as our principle. The first is this. It means to teach what Jesus taught. To teach what Jesus taught. Look at verse 5 of chapter 10 of Matthew. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. This is an interesting statement. It's actually a prohibition of Gentile missions. This will be lifted in the Great Commission in chapter 28. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Rather, go to the lost sheep of Israel. So now they know where they're to go, the 12, and then he says, this is what you do. You go 
preached this message. Same word used for what Jesus does in Matthew 4.23 and 9.35. You proclaim that the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. So the message to teach what Jesus taught is to teach the kingdom of God. There are five points. I don't need to go through them. Jesus taught his disciples about the kingdom of God. What they would have been saying is that God's long-awaited promises like the Magnificat with Mary and the Benedictus with Zechariah, that the long-awaited promises of Israel are now coming to pass in this guy we call Jesus. Can you imagine the conversations that these apostles had as they were sent into the villages of Galilee and Israel? Can you imagine the conversations they had? And you're telling us that Jesus said this, and he did this, and he exercised demons, and the Pharisees are all mad at him, and the Sadducees are mad at him, and you're telling me that he's the Messiah. His mother, <clears throat> there's a story about his mother. She was illeg- it was an illegitimate child. And you're telling us that this is the Messiah. But they went into these environments, and they told people about Jesus. I believe that we have to absorb the teachings of Jesus so deeply that we can accommodate them and adapt them to our own context. For a long time, I used to have a grudge match with the Apostle Paul. Jesus teaches about the kingdom, and Paul rarely mentions the kingdom. I thought, what's wrong? Jesus' word's not good enough for you, young apostle? And then I looked at Peter, and he didn't do this either. And he was Jesus' first disciple. And then I looked at John, and John didn't do this either. And then I looked at James. I mean, good grief, according to tradition, is the brother of Jesus. He knew what he was saying, and he doesn't talk like Jesus. And I learned from this the missionary principle that each of us, as we carry out the mission of God, learns to take the vision of Jesus and adapt it to our environment in language, in message, in context, and in relevance. What we say in the United States, we should divide that up, in the Pacific Northwest and in California, in Texas, and they think they're their own country, world, in the Midwest, in the Northeast, in the South, in the Deep South, in Florida, where everybody has gray hair and long white socks and shorts, In each of those contexts, we have to speak the gospel. And good pastors, good missionaries, good Christians know how to speak the gospel in their world in their way. This is the message of the Bible. The Bible doesn't have four spiritual laws in Genesis 1, and we use that in every chapter. It is a continual adaptation to different people in different times, in different ways we speak the gospel. But we are biblically anchored because we soak ourselves in scriptures, but we shape the message to our individual context. To gospel is to tell people about Jesus and to adapt that message to our context so that people hear it and don't misunderstand it. I taught college students for 17 years on Tuesdays and Thursday mornings 
all school year, both semesters, both terms, at 8 o'clock, I had a class called Jesus of Nazareth. 50% of my students were Christians, and 50% of my students were not Christians. And I got to tell them about Jesus. And I cannot tell you the number of stories of students I had who fell in love with Jesus because they got to study about Jesus. I had a student one time in a class. I often gave a quiz on the first day of class. I did this originally so that I would find out what students knew. After the first time I gave it, I knew not much when it came to the Bible. And the first question on my quiz was, who are the first two people mentioned in the Bible? A student sitting in the back, her name is Andrea, came up to me after about five minutes or ten minutes, and she said, "Um, I think I'm going to have to drop this class. And I said, why is that? And she said, I can't answer any of the questions. And foolishly, I said, not even the first one? She said, not even the first one. I said, all right, Andrea. I said, what? I first, then I said, I said, what is your name? And she said, my name's Andrea. I said, Andrea, you can leave now so you're not embarrassed. And you don't have to take this quiz. But I said, I want you to come to this class. And you sit in the back row. And every time you don't understand what I'm saying, just do this. First day of class. <laughs> all day long. She didn't understand anything I was talking about. Second week of class, occasionally. Third week of class, Andrea stopped rubbing her nose. Sixth week of class, we start talking about Jesus pretty seriously. And her eyes are full of light. All that ever happened in the exchange between Andrea and me during this semester was that she would come into class... She would always walk by my, where I was standing like this, and she'd say, hi, professor, and she would sit down. She never wanted to talk. I said, okay. At the end of the semester, Andrea wrote me a long letter, and she said, my father was abused by a Roman Catholic Polish priest in the city of Chicago, and as a result of that, he banned us from ever going to church, from ever reading the Bible, and from ever talking about God. And she said, when I came to this class, I literally knew nothing about God, the Bible, and Christianity, and I'm here to be a nurse. So I had to take this class. But she said to me, as I was reading the Bible, she said, about the fourth or fifth week in class. Now listen to what she said. She had no idea where this came from. She said, as I read the Bible, I felt my heart warmed. And I thought, strangely, and you could have been a Wesleyan. Because John Wesley's famous statement of conversion is his heart was strangely warmed. And Andrea became a Christian and gave her life to Jesus in that class because she encountered Jesus in the Bible. And Andrea, at the end of the term, was a Christian and as she took my, uh, another course that I taught at, Nor- at North Park when I was teaching there. And then Andrea became a nurse, and four years later, she graduated from North Park with a huge smile on her face as she came by me and just said, thanks. You know, 
You know what we've got to offer the world? Jesus. Nothing else. So we can tell people about Jesus, and I can assure you, they're interested in Jesus. They may not like the church, and they may not like you, but they are interested in Jesus. I have found this time and time again. I would teach 60 students a term, Jesus of Nazareth, 30 of whom were not Christians on, a, on an average. Normally in a school year, between 10 and 20 of those students would tell me they had given their life to Jesus. Only because they had read the Bible and encountered Jesus. Open up the book and show them the guy. That's our responsibility. And that's what the apostles did. They went to these communities and they talked about Jesus. And they talked about the kingdom of God. One student, I hope you will excuse her language. After class, we were talking about Jesus, and I could tell she was agitated in class. And we were talking about the kingdom of God. And as class uh, departed, she was standing at the back. And as I left the door, she started following me. And it got a little uncomfortable. So I was walking across the campus, and I turned around, and there she was. And then I got to my office. She knocked on the door. She came in and sat down, and she was really irritated. And this is what she said to me. I am so pissed. All right? And I thought, this is the way college students and Lutherans talk. (laughs) So I'm used to this. I said, what's the problem? She said, I grew up in the church, and I never heard about Jesus. All we talked about was Romans. And I love Jesus, and I want to give my life to him. How do I do it? I said, you've done it. And she went to seminary, and she's a minister today of the gospel. Because she heard about Jesus. That is our responsibility in churches to make sure that every week, everybody who comes in contact with us hears about Jesus. I'm serious people like him. Second, not only do we we teach what Jesus taught, we have to do what Jesus did. We have to do what Jesus did. Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. Here is your mission and my mission and their mission. This was okay in verse 7, but 8 gets tough. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. I bet that doesn't happen very often in Northern Ireland. It doesn't happen in the United States at all. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Now, if you look at those expressions, every one of them, every one of them is illustrated at least one time in Matthew chapters 8 and 9 which drives us back to the original principle of mission. Our responsibility is to extend and expand the mission of Jesus. The, the, there are two ways people do this. They can imitate it. I think the great example and the great weakness of one of my favorite Christians in the history of the church is St. Francis from Assisi, who imitated Jesus. Jesus had 12 followers. He had to have 12 followers. He had to find lepers in order to minister with Jesus. 
I don't think he raised anybody from the dead, though the Franciscans tell stories that he did. You know, they fill it with legends. But he imitated. I don't think that our responsibility is to imitate Jesus. Other than, if we did that, we'd have to try to find people who have leprosy, which is probably not all that common uh, in our countries. So we're not called to imitate Jesus. We are called to discern and to respond to those in need the way Jesus responded to those in need. We're not looking for homeless. We're responding to people who are on our path, like Jesus tells in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We are not looking for people who are dead so that we can raise them to life. We are not looking for people who have leprosy. We are not looking for the poor. We are responding to people who are in our path. And our responsibility is to responsively discern how we can extend the very thing that Jesus did to offer life to people in whatever circumstance they are, to bring them life. One time a student after class, uh, first day of class, comes into my office and she sits down. I didn't even know her name. She never did tell me her name on that session. And she says to me, what do you think about homosexuality? That's a tough first question for somebody you don't know. I said, well, don't you think that's a bit of a a, a difficult question for this moment? And she says, well, what do you think about war? And I thought, she, she wants to talk. So I said, what's your name? What are your parents, where are you from? What are your parents like? So she didn't ask me about Chris and our kids. We didn't have grandkids at the time. We talked a little bit about the Chicago Cubs. They won again yesterday, just in case you're interested. <laughs> Ten in a row. And we talked for about 45 minutes about life, about faith. And she told me, she said, I cannot wait to study this class on Jesus. And I just want to talk to you about it. So after 45 minutes, she looked at her watch. Actually, she looked at her phone. That's really... Society is degrading when we're losing watches. I like the old pocket watches. You know, that's just beyond expectations anymore. So... She gets up, puts her backpack on her bag. She walks down the stairs. About halfway down the stairs, she yells back, Yo, Scott, let's do this next week. (laughs) Every week after class, the entire semester, she came in because she wanted to talk about Jesus and what he did. She dedicated her life to Jesus, and she's serving Jesus in the United States today, and she wants to do what Jesus did in her world. It's wonderful. People like Jesus. Let's get out of the way so they hear him and see him and encounter him because they will encounter him. So first, if we're going to carry on the mission of Jesus, we're going to have to teach what Jesus taught. Secondly, we're going to have to do what Jesus did. And the third thing is, and this is a difficult one, we're going to have to trust as Jesus trusted. We often don't talk about the faith of Jesus or his faithfulness. But Jesus was filled with the Spirit, the Gospels tell us. He trusted in God and he prayed to God. God was his Father 
as he is our Father. And he taught his disciples to trust. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 9. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. So don't have extra cash on hand. No bag for the journey in which you could place food and money. Don't take an extra shirt or sandals or a staff. A staff would have been used predominantly for protection. And if you have a bad knee, to prop you up. But that wasn't going on here. Why should we take nothing? The worker is worth his keep. What does that mean? Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. Now, this is a sacramental blessing upon the house. If the home is worthy or deserving, let your peace rest upon it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet as an act of judgment for unbelief. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Now, Jesus is teaching his disciples to go. And wherever you go, they're going to take care of you. And if if you're not very successful, it could be a long night. You could not have food. Now, if you're near the Sea of Galilee, you can always fish. And this was one of the interesting features of their life. Jesus had taught already in the Sermon on the Mount these kinds of words in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. This was Jesus' first commandment to become bird watchers. I've met a lot of Christians who don't see any birds around them. They're being very unfaithful to Jesus' words. Look at the birds of the sky. Because in the birds you will see the protection of God. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more worthy than they? Can any of you... By worrying at a single hour to your life. And why do you worry about clothing? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these flowers. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself Each day has enough trouble on its own. Jesus was really insistent on this point. 
The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Come follow me. Jesus calls us to mission, and he calls us to trust him for provision in that mission. I don't know what this means for you. You may have an ordinary job, which is great, but Jesus wants you to trust God in that context by being generous and hospitable to gospel ministries so that they can be propped up and the ministry of Jesus and the mission of Jesus can be extended and expanded, first through the local church and then into other ministries in the world. And we all have to learn these lessons of trust. Some of you are making decisions right now, difficult decisions about generosity, about hospitality, and about mission. Trust God will provide for you because God clothes. Look at the world. Notice how God takes care of things. When I began uh, my doctoral studies, I was at the University of Nottingham in England. And I was given a Rotary Foundation scholarship, and it was enough for one year that my wife is, a, is very good in finances, so we could probably stretch that to a little bit more than a year. But we knew we were going to run out. And one night, and we'd been praying about it, and one night, our curate named John Corey knocked on the door, and he said, can I come in? I mean, ministers knocking on your door at 8 o'clock at night and asking to come in. I thought, what have I said? (laughs) I was young. And he came in, and he sat down. It was pretty quick. And he uh, he said, Scott and Chris, we've heard that you don't have enough money to continue your Ph.D. studies. And I want you to know that we'll provide that money for you. I didn't know who he, we, we had no idea how he knew about this. We hadn't told, I don't think we'd hardly told anyone. I got a doctorate, and I got to teach because of the generosity of John and Elizabeth Corey. John Corey is a professor of mission now in, in England. He's edited a book, and every now and then we write him, and he writes us every Christmas. We paid him back. And we have been generous with other students in our life to extend that. But many of us can tell these stories of generosity. After we finished studying, we came back to the United States, and uh, I painted houses for the summer. Miserable. Do you know what it's like to paint when it's 96 degrees, and you're painting white in the sun, and you'd rather be reading books about Rudolf Bultmann and Gunter Bornkamm? and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Oh, I hated it. But I had to paint through the month of August, but I had to start teaching in the beginning of September, but we weren't going to get paid from Trinity until the end of September. And one day, a couple families in our church came by and said, we would like to donate the money so that you can exist this month. The generosity of other Christians. This is what Jesus is talking about that you and I are called to obey the mission and to, tr- and to launch out into that mission, and God will provide. I just recently read the story, uh, and, and I'm aware that not that many, hardly anyone, one person, uh, has told us they know where this is in Ireland. Off the Ring of Kerry is an island called Skellig Michael. And I read a book by a guy named Morehouse on... I think it's called Sun Rising or Sun Arising. It's the story of this monastery. 
that started in the 7th century or 6th century. And some of it he had to fill in the details in a really good Irish tale, so I believed every bit of it. But he knows he had to fill in some details, and he provides excellent documentation at the end of the book. But what so impressed me, for seven or eight hundred years on this desolate island off of Ireland, off of the Ring of Kerry, in the middle of nowhere, but there are puffins and fish, that this monastery for 700 years flourished with people praying, but constantly praying and asking God to provide for them, because it wasn't always easy to provide. They somehow concocted a garden on the top of this island. And it was such a story to me of the provision of God for His people throughout the world. I know so many people who have been provided for so, in Acts 1.8, when Jesus sends the disciples out to be witnesses, they are to witness to who Jesus is. They had seen Jesus do it well. And they had experienced it firsthand when he sent them out as 12 in Luke chapter 9. And then in Luke 10, he sent them out as 70 or 72. There's debate on what it originally said. They would go two by two into local villages and they would tell people about the kingdom of God. What did they do? I think it's very simple. They taught what Jesus taught, they did what Jesus did, and they trusted the way Jesus trusted. I want to encourage you in Northern Ireland, or wherever you are, to become kingdom disciples in the mission of Jesus by taking Jesus with you, by talking about His teachings, by doing what he does, by showing compassion and grace and mercy and healing to all those who are in your path, and trust God to provide for the mission that he's given to you.